When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. How does it feel like when you are satisfied from eating? You know, when you overeat, when you eat an amount that doesn't feel good in your body, that's generally not satisfying. If you undereat, that's not satisfying. Where's that sweet spot? How do you want to feel when you finish? What tastes good? You're listening to Evan Tribole on Psychologists Off the Clock. We are four clinical psychologists here to bring you cutting edge and science-based ideas from psychology to help you flourish in your relationships, work, and health. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado. I'm Dr. Diana Hill, practicing in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California. From coast to coast, I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University. And from sunny San Diego, I'm Dr. Jill Stoddard, author of Be Mighty and the Big Book of Act Metaphors. We hope you take what you learn here to build a rich and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. We are sponsored by Praxis Continuing Education. Praxis offers online and continuing education in ACT, CBT, compassion-focused therapy. Some of their on-demand courses right now are ACT Immersion with Steve Hayes. Matthew Boone is offering a CE workshop on ACT 1. And Louise Hayes is offering a workshop on the DNA V model, which is great to use if you're working with teens. And for those of you that are interested in some online courses, There's a great course coming up on Wednesday, July 22nd with Anthony Biglin on Commit to Act, Evolving a Society that Works for Everyone. So check them out at praxiscet.com or if you go through our website, which is offtheclockpsych.com, we have a discount code there for their live online courses. For those of you that want to learn more about contextual behavioral science, the ACBS World Conference 2020 is online this year, and the program is happening from July 16th to July 19th. Registration is available, and we'll put a link to that in our show notes. And two of our podcast co-hosts, Jill Stoddard and Debbie Sorensen, will be speaking on a panel on the imposter syndrome. So check them out on Saturday morning, and we hope to see you there. So today we have Evelyn Triblet on the show to talk about intuitive eating, and she offers a perspective on how dieting culture and body stigma has really disconnected us from our body's wisdom of hunger and fullness and healthy movement and our ability to use intuition around food. And she offers sort of this really um, kind of radical I would say, but also intuitive approach to our relationship with food and our bodies. And as we've shared a lot on this podcast, there are so many different factors that go into what we eat, how we eat, how we feel about our bodies. And if we're going to have a chance at sort of restructuring our relationship with food, I think it helps to understand all these complex interactions, both at the individual level, but more also stepping back and looking at the systemic level, which Evelyn talks a bit about in the podcast. And just sort of off the bat, Jill, I'm wondering, what was your reaction to this episode? 
Um, well, I really, I mean, I loved this episode because I could relate to so much of what she was saying. I mean, I personally have a complicated relationship with food and eating. And so there was, there were actually points where she was talking and I got a little bit weepy because I felt so seen and validated, you know, based on her take on some of these things. And so Evelyn talks a lot about our learning history, for example, how did your parents use use food? What was their relationship with food in terms of how it was modeled to you? Was your weight overvalued or were you shamed by your weight? And then there's other influences on, on our eating and our relationship with our bodies, things like neuroscience. We have tricky brains that are sort of a mismatch for our current environment, our current food environment. Um, there's emotion regulation reasons why we eat, whether we use food to suppress emotion or express emotion. It's very much built into our communities and the way we connect. Uh, there's also systemic influences like poverty, accessibility to healthy food, and public policy and healthcare that tend to take more of an individualistic approach as opposed to really looking at what are the systems involved that influence our eating, how we eat, um, as well as a diet culture, which seems to shape shift as she, as she talks about really more has morphed over time. When I was a kid, it was all about fat free and now we're full swing at the keto diet. And then I think something that's been really, um, at least on my mind recently, is also looking at stigma and prejudice and this promotion of white Western standards of beauty that's really built into this model of thinness that's promoted around this one type of body weight and shape. It's not surprising that we're so confused about food and that our relationship with, with eating and our bodies is so complex. We've had a lot of people on the show to talk about these different perspectives. We've had a lot of amazing experts, like we had Stephen Guyanet talk about the neuroscience of eating and the role our brains play in overeating. Dr. Evan Foreman was on, on an episode. He spoke with us about how he uses acceptance and behavioral strategies for obesity, um, as well as Dr. Jason Lillis talked about ACT skills for healthy eating. We've also had Dr. Jennifer Webb talk about systemic barriers to physical activity, bias, and inclusivity in yoga programs. I interviewed Dr. Kelly McGonigal about her book, The Joy of Movement, and how we can reclaim joy around movement. And Katie Bowman also talked a lot about integrating nutritious movement into our daily lives. I think it surprised both Diana and me to, to look at this list. We've had Dr. Rhonda Merwin, Deborah Safer, Linda Craighead. I mean, we've had so many incredible experts talk to us about this topic, but it really just goes to show how complex it really is and how many factors there are that we need to take into consideration. For you, Jill, what was your, or what has been your personal experience? I know you've tried intuitive eating for yourself and with your kids. Yeah. So I discovered their book, probably the first edition a while back. And I think the thing that I have found the most helpful, you know, I, like many of our listeners, I'm sure grew up with a dieting mom. So there was a lot of messaging in our home around bodies and body size and thinness and good foods and bad foods. And, you know, as much as I've done a lot of work on my own through therapy and other things, I was really terrified of passing this on to my children and what I found one of the most helpful parts of the intuitive eating book is they talk about all of the research that essentially says, as humans, we're born knowing, we, we, we're born being able to pay attention to our hunger and satiety cues. We know when we want to eat and how much we want to eat, but culture and society and diet culture especially 
um, teach us to ignore these things. And, you know, so with my own children, I think if I hadn't read this book, I would have been so afraid of them being overweight or gaining weight and having to suffer the ramifications of that, like I have my my whole life, that I think I would have inadvertently become controlling with them around food. And instead, I've really let them take control of uh, when they eat and how much they eat. And of course, I have a large say in what they're eating, um, but even have noticed that if if I allow them to have treats and sugar and things like that, it's not something that becomes so desirable because they never have it. And that's something that Evelyn talks about in the episode, that when you say your kids can't have any sugar, they start stuffing cupcakes in their pockets at every birthday party. Um, and at least so far, my children are eight and six. And, you know, they both seem to have just kind of a normal, healthy relationship with food. And I really do think that that has a lot to do with what I learned from reading her book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that this work on intuitive eating is particularly useful as a prevention measure um, in terms of preventing disordered eating or imbalanced relationships with food and body. I think there's more question around working with something like eating disorders or very severe um, obesity in terms of how do we, how do we navigate this? Like we just talked about this complex um, interacting system of all these different things that are in place in terms of our um, our biology and the systems in which we live in. And uh, it was actually appetite awareness was where a lot of my early research was with Linda Craighead in doing her appetite awareness programming. Uh, and it was actually most useful for people that were at risk for developing eating disorders. And that's where it really had a, a great benefit or people that were in recovery, but a little further along in their recovery. Cause early on in recovery for something like anorexia, um, it can be that you actually have to follow a meal plan to get your hunger and fullness signals back in line when you're malnourished. So um, I think there's some nuances that are important to look at in terms of the research of who and when and how this is most useful, but man, she has, um, quite a passionate and really heartfelt and um, influential message to share in this episode. And I also think that if there's one really important movement that she has created, it is to fight against diet culture. Because there is truly nothing positive that comes out of human beings believing that what they need to do is be on a diet. Weight stigma is part of that. And even some of the physical impact of the, of the stress of, of weight stigma, um, which is just incredibly detrimental and does not in any way make you more motivated to want to take care of your body and really nourish yourself in a healthy way. Evelyn Tribali is an award-winning registered dietitian with a nutrition counseling practice in Newport Beach, California. She has written nine books, including the bestsellers Healthy Homestyle Cooking and Intuitive Eating. Her newest book is Intuitive Eating Workbook, 10 Principles for Nourishing a Healthy Relationship with Food. And she'll be out with a new edition of her intuitive eating book in June. Evelyn is the, it was the nutrition expert for Good Morning America, appearing from 1994 to 95, and was national spokesperson for the American Dietetic Association for six years. She was contributing editor for Shape Magazine, where her monthly column, Recipe Makeovers, appeared for 11 years. And she's appeared on hundreds of interviews, including CNN, Today Show, MSNBC, Fox News, USA Today, Wall Street Journal, People Magazine. 
Interestingly, Evelyn qualified for the Olymp Olympic trials. This is new. I didn't know about this. Okay. I know this about you. For the Olympic trials in the first ever women's marathon in 1984. And although, although she no longer competes, Evelyn runs for fun and is an avid skier and hiker. She enjoys surfing and kayaking and whitewater rafting. Her favorite food is chocolate, when, especially when she can savor it slowly. I'm super excited to talk with you, Evelyn, today all about intuitive eating, your life's work, and uh, how you've really changed some of the field of our, um, in terms of our diet culture. Yeah, absolutely. And there's just one thing I want to clarify up front, and that is I'm the co-author of, of Intuitive Eating, and Elise Rush is my, my partner in the work. So yeah. it's been, right. been life-changing for both of us, actually. Yeah. So I think a good place for us to start, Evelyn, is for you to lay the foundation for us of what is intuitive eating and, and how it may be a different way of thinking about our relationship with food and our bodies. Yeah, and, and you just hit the nail on the head. It's all about us being in relationships with our with our body and our relationship we have with our eating and our body and our mind for that matter really mirrors relationship issues in life. And so it's so funny, depending who I talk on, I talk to rather, I, I, I modify the message of what intuitive eating is. So when I'm talking to teenagers, it's like, man, you're the expert of your body. No one can be the boss of you. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, when I'm talking to health professionals and, and scientists, I'll say, you know, intuitive eating is a self-care eating framework that has 10 principles. There's over 125 uh, research uh, studies on our, on our model, which I find so exciting. And it's really an inner, uh, an inner dynamic approach using rational mind, thought, and um, instinct. And so it's, it's very, it's very, very fluid. And there's a, a lot of misunderstanding as to what intuitive eating is. On the one hand, it's getting so popular right now, it's growing into a bona fide movement. Uh, and as a result of that popularity, uh, diet culture is trying to co-opt some of our work and that creates confusion. So I'm thrilled here to be talking about this because it really helps change people's lives and it really um, helps you let go of unnecessary suffering. It breaks my heart when I see the amount of time people spend in worrying around shame around their eating and around their bodies rather than figuring out what is my life purpose? What is meaningful to me? Uh, or being engaged in that conversation with your partner or your kid as opposed to being distracted about, oh my God, can I eat this? Should I eat this? And, and so on and so on. So, yeah. yeah. We were just chatting before we started about ACT and how I see some of the flavor of ACT in your workbook. And really what you're describing is when we're engaged in a diet mentality or trying to control our food or so caught up in obsessing about our bodies, it pulls us away from our valued activities or the life that is really important to us. And I'm wondering if we could maybe go through some of those 10 principles, because I think it gives a good structure for us to get, get an understanding or wrap our heads around what it would be like to be in a, in a place of intuitive eating. So the first is reject the diet mentality. Second is honor your hunger make peace with food, challenge the food police, feel your fullness, discover the satisfaction factor, cope with your feelings, respect your body, exercise and feel the difference and honor your health through gentle nutrition. So there's a balance of both listening in, in terms of your hunger and fullness, but then also maybe approaching the messages that we've been taught about diet and, and eating in a different way. 
Yeah. And so one way I like to describe it, that this is an inside job. This is not about what people are telling you. It's about tapping into what is my body telling me? You know, our bodies are these amazing inner GPS systems that's giving us messaging all the time. Even things like correction, correction, you know, we're headed the wrong way. And it's really based in a fascinating area of research called interceptive awareness. And interceptive awareness is our ability to perceive physical sensations that arise within the body. It includes obvious things like a full bladder, uh, feeling your heart rate, hunger and fullness. But one of the things that just blows me away is how every emotion has a physical sensation to it. And so when we are listening to these messages, it's actually a way to help get our biological and our psychological needs met. But when you are at war with your body, or when diet culture is saying your body is wrong, we're not listening to our messenger. We're saying, go away. I don't like you. I don't trust you. And so this is a about coming back home. It's a path of liberation and, and freedom, really. Mm-hmm. So part of that listening in is really listening to your hunger and your satiety. And those yeah. are two of the, the principles of intuitive eating. What does that look like for people? Because I, I imagine people, you know, for a lot of us, we've gotten pretty disconnected to what it feels like to be hungry, or we fear our hunger, or yeah. we've misabused our hunger with a history of dieting. Or trying to fake it out, which is why it's so important that the first thing we recognize is we need to reject the diet mentality and diet culture. And, you know, when we wrote this book 25 years ago, the original, diet culture wasn't as fierce as it is today. So what I say to my patients, it's it's no wonder you don't trust yourself and you haven't been kind to your body and kindness would be feeding it, nourish it. But when you've been withholding, it's like, I don't trust you. You've been mean to me. <laughs> and so sometimes what happens is when there's an opportunity to eat, you're going to see. And, and an example I love you, it's, it's a metaphor that when we go into the ocean, because I, I live very near the ocean, I grew up with waves. And when a big set comes, you, 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 you go underneath the wave and you wait till, this kind of, till it passes. And sometimes it feels like an eternity and you finally come up and you take that big panicky gasp for air. And no one says to you, oh my God, you have lost controlled breathing. Oh my God, you're addicted to air. Oh, you're binge breathing. Everyone knows it's a natural compensatory response. But when it comes to eating, a lot of people don't realize that is a natural compensatory response to our body that if you've been restricting, whether intentionally to try to shrink your body, or you just had like a a day that was beyond you and you didn't have enough to eat, that our body is going to get our attention with this profound, what we call primal hunger. And that's actually your body working. That's your body trying to save you from, from harm. It's our survival mechanism. So this basic act of listening to our body sounds so basic, you know, we'll honor your hunger. But when people have been taught to be afraid of hunger or that hunger for them means loss of control eating, because it's fascinating when you take a look at research and all the research on dieting is striking. There's a body of work showing that dieting is the best predictor toward weight gain, that the studies that look at unintended consequences find loss of control eating or binge eating. It's like, yeah, that's the body just trying to correct itself. But no one talks about that. No one says, oh man, I lost my stuff with keto and I just couldn't stop eating. People don't brag about that. And diet culture is very loud. And so then there's this shaming effect. There's something wrong with me. There's something wrong with my body. And it's like, no, your body body's working just fine, but we need to start honoring it and listening to it. Mm-hmm. One of the I've heard you talk about also noticing the more subtle hunger, even the, the pleasant aspect of hunger yeah. or the pleasant aspect of fullness of getting into 
that really what you describe as attunement and getting back into a safe place in a relationship with your body that it's normal to feel hunger. It's it's the the fear comes up from the primal hunger of you restricted way long or over a lot of periods of time or people that have a fear about going to sleep hungry because they've had this, this history of maybe abusing their bodies in this way. But part of being a normal eater is, is having some hunger and and then also having, having some fullness. Absolutely. And that's that's such a good point that not only do these, these cues are normal, but there's also pleasant aspects. And I will tell you, every time I've asked a patient, a new patient, what does pleasant hunger feel like to you? It's like they freeze. It's like, what? Those <laughs> like, don't go heard it. It's an oxymoron. Like, what mean, yeah, what do you mean <laughs> yeah. pleasant hunger? And yeah. then I'll say, you know what? I want to have a conversation, but let's talk about first with something you're familiar with. Maybe you're more familiar with unpleasant hunger. Then, oh my gosh, all the stories come out, you know? And then we'll talk about that hunger has a pleasant quality and part of that quality is you start thinking about food and then all of a sudden it's like what that's normal it's like yeah it sounds like oh lunch sounds kind of good right now or dinner sounds kind of you start thinking about food and it's I sometimes describe it as polite that you're looking forward to eating but it's not urgent it's not like get out of my way I will kill you if I don't get that meal it's it's a different it's a relaxed kind of hunger and there's a looking forward to eating the problem is is when you've been at war with your body and you've had extreme hunger the idea of pleasantness might sound really foreign, but it's something just for you to know that that it's possible. And the same thing with, with pleasant fullness. It's that comfortable, relaxed, like, ah, I've had enough to eat, I'm satisfied, and, and it, it feels good. And so what's really interesting is even though there's 10 principles of intuitive eatings, you don't have to go in order with them. They're just, they're an interdynamic process. And sometimes with some people, I'll start with, let's aim for satisfaction. What does satisfaction feel like for you? It's such a personal question. I can't answer that for you. You know, is it satisfying to begin a meal when you're too hungry and you just want to, you know, gobble in all that food? Uh, what, what, uh, how does it feel like when you are satisfied from eating? You know, when you overeat, when you eat a, an amount that doesn't feel good in your body, that's generally not satisfying. If you undereat, that's not satisfying. Where's that sweet spot? How do you want to feel when you finish? What tastes good? What sounds good? And I'm going to tell you, I consider these really basic questions, but I've had patients and clients crying when I've asked that because I'll say, I have no idea. No one's ever asked me that. No one's ever cared, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And so we we begin with that. And it's Mm -hmm. because it's pleasant based and it's also very curious. It's the way we can start tapping into this process without getting into a lot of detail, you know? And given that it's under this umbrella of interoceptive awareness and really individualized to the person, if we were asking the same person, what does joy feel like to you? Or what does contentment feel like to you? Or what does anger feel like to you? The expectation that we would have one cookie cutter response to what what we should be eating or what (laughs) hunger feels like or when we should eat or how much we should eat is kind of as ridiculous as we should have one cookie cutter way of saying this is what brings you joy. This is what causes sadness. It's very different for each individual. And the journey is in of looking inside to figure that out. Yeah. Yeah. And so one of the things I like to stress with this, as you're describing it, and because this is a journey, this is not a journey of pass or fail. This is a journey of discovery and learning. 
you know, and learning what, what feels good to you. And it might be like, Oh, I didn't, I didn't like that meal or, Oh, I would have, I would do this differently. It's not pass or fail, but diet culture tends to cultivate binary thinking, all or none thinking, black or white thinking. I, I was bad. I ate bad. This food is bad. And when we start talking in those judgmental terms, we tend to, as you know, in, internalize that as opposed to what can I learn from this experience? What did I learn about this from my, for myself? And when we have learning, we transcend whatever took place and it gives us meaning and lets us let go. If something that we ate, uh, we feel bad about, you know? What's tricky right now is that, you know, back in, in 2003, when, when I first got your book, it was really clear of what was a diet, what was diet culture and what was not, yeah. you know, Jenny Craig and little packages, that's diet culture, right. <laughs> you know, but what's, what I've heard um, your co-author say is that currently there's this wellness movement that is like a wolf in, in sheep's clothing. Absolutely. And it's hard to discern. I think, you know, I, I'm a mom that wants my kids to have all the f- nourishing healthy foods to help them grow strong and be active in the world and then I also on the other hand don't want to promote rigid control over food and what is wellness and what is a diet and it's much I think it's much more it's more difficult to make that discernment right now it's it's incredibly difficult and so what I what I say to anyone the reason it's difficult you know who wrote about it the best so far I think is Jessica Noel she wrote that op-ed piece in the New York Times where she described diet culture as a virus and it's shape-shifting and Mm -hmm. so it's gone from diet culture to now wellness culture and the code underneath that is like shrink your body and so it's understandable that people are confused by this. It's one of the reasons why we wanted to update intuitive eating on the fourth edition is to talk about this diet culture and how sneaky this is. But ultimately, if we can remember, you're the boss of your body, you're the expert of your body, you get to decide what feels good and what's what's true for you. And I say as a mom, you know, it's a tough time to be a parent. It just, it just is. And we, when we're looking at health, and I think you'll appreciate this being a psychologist, it's not just what we eat. It's, it's our psychological health, our emotional health, our spiritual health, all those times of things. And the problem is when someone gets too focused on so-called healthy eating, when it becomes fixated and rigid, that becomes unhealthy. The stress around the eating choices is not good for our mind or our body. And so we have to remember emotional health is part of this whole whole piece of healing, you know? So one of the questions that some of my co-hosts came up with when I asked them, I told them I was going to be speaking with you was around parenting and how, yeah. how do we do this with our kids? How do we, you know, make sure our kids get enough fruits and vegetables for the, the guidelines, but, but not have them grow up being obsessed with food or worried about food and worried about their bodies. And so, you know, one of the things that's not commonly known about intuitive eating is we don't really talk about it overtly in the book, but it was really modeled out of a lot of the work that came out of L. Birch, who's a seminal researcher now retired on the, on the parent feeding child relationship. And there was a, a, a study she published. I will never forget it because it blew me away. I think it was the new England journal of medicine and I'm reading it. And it's really dry. And at some point, <laughs> She says, on the surface, a toddler's eating can look like a parent's worst nightmare. It's like, oh my God, she's talking language I understand. And she went on to describe how over time it really 
averages out. Mm -hmm. And her research has shown over and over again that if you try and get too controlling of your kids eating, it actually creates the opposite impact of what you're trying to have. And I've seen this in my practice over and over again. Well-meaning parents, I want to emphasize that, well-meaning parents implementing rules. Well, we can't have sugar. Quote, that's not healthy. And now this kid turns into the kid who's so excited about the sugar and the candy at parties. They're stuffing their 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 little pockets and everything, and they can care less about the games and the presents. They become over-occupied on that. And so there's a body of work on that. There's also a body of work from Ellen Satter, who we highly respect the Ellen Satter Institute and her eating competence. And she has the division of responsibility where the parents are responsible for providing the food. So you can provide the fruits and vegetables or whatnot, but the job of the child is to figure out how much they want to eat, if, if at all. And there's no drama or emotionality involved in in the eating. And I have seen this be a profoundly healing thing for families and parents to work with a young parent who has struggled with diet culture. And I'll say, you know, the idea of changing culture is really big, but the idea that you can change the legacy of diet culture at your family table or in your family, we can stop the legacy of that pain and suffering. I find it really gives them meaning. It really taps into their value system. They don't want their kids to worry about their body or to be counting macros and all those kinds of things. And so it's a balancing out. So sometimes when people see intuitive eating, like on Instagram, they see all these memes of donuts and cupcakes and happiness and frivolity with eating. <laughs> and some people misinterpret that oh you're promoting you know unhealthy eating and what this is about but you know the 10th principle of intuitive eating is on your health and gentle nutrition it's still part of it it's just not the single focus of, of of this relationship and so when we think about with our kids you know one of the things we want them to, to master is this idea of, of autonomy you know and this idea of trust those are the first two stages in uh, the Ericksonian psychosocial development that we have to master these things and if we as parents try and get involved in this telling them what to eat what not to eat, you can't be hungry you can't have that it creates that doubt and then when they try to assert their autonomy Autonomy, they're going to rebel with their eating. You want to see a rise out of a parent. Oh my gosh. You know, I had a, I'll never forget this, this teenager that was very angry at her parents for this rigid eating that they implemented in the family. And she got to the point where she would get like um, a candy bar and purposely open it up in front of her mom just to see her reaction, you know, and that's, that's a form of acting out. I'm not, I'm not endorsing that, but those are the kinds of things that can happen when someone's trying to assert their autonomy. And so it's a powerful thing when we don't make food extra special. Food is enjoyment. Food is celebratory. Food is, is connection. But we don't attach all this extra meaning so that they're, all they're thinking about is, oh, my God, how am I going to get the candy? Because, you know, I'm at so-and-so's party. And I can't tell you the amount of parents I've worked with where they'll say, you know, I can tell when one of my kids' friends have rigid rules around their home because the first thing they do instead of getting into the games is they get into the into the snack drawer where there's, you know, candy and other kinds of things and they're chowing down on it because they can't have it. It makes me think of an interview that we did with Dr. Sixred who wrote the book, The Self-Driven Child. And he's not oh. talking about it in terms of food at all. He doesn't mention food, but he talks about it more in terms of as when you as a parent are saying to your kid, I trust that you can figure this out. I trust you to solve this, or I trust you, your, your, your wisdom around this. And the child taps into their own wisdom and trust yeah. themselves. And it's, it's that messaging of, you know, of, of telling, telling our children, like, what, what, what are you hungry for? What is your hunger? Like, what, what is your fullness level? Let, 
modeling that to them and trusting them to make the decisions for themselves and still trust in, in themselves around the relationship with food, which is was there when they were born. Yeah. Or, or I've seen the struggle happen with, with parents who have their un, own unresolved issues around eating in their body. And if they're having trouble with regulating their own eating, they can't imagine that their kid would know how to do it. So they project their fears onto the kids and they micromanage it. It's coming from a place of good intentions. So one major pathway to feeling that loss of control over food or um, that sense of, ah, I can't trust myself with food is overriding your, your natural hunger and fullness system and re restricting. And there's a bio, there's a biological reason why that's happening. It's not your fault. It's, okay. This is what happens when anybody gets restricts their restricts their food. And another, I think another reason why we sometimes lose control of our food, or sometimes we find ourselves overeating is that sometimes our wires are getting crossed with what is emotional eating and what is hunger fullness and, and, yeah. and, and food has forever been a way of comfort and dealing with stress, whether um, that's just even as babies as we, you know, we nurse when, when, when they're crying and that's, that's also normal, but also what can happen is it can, the wires can get crossed and food can become used for emotional reasons as well, which you yeah. address in your book. Yeah, and in fact, that was one of the significant changes we made in this upcoming edition is we actually changed the title of that particular uh, principle, and that is coping with your feelings with kindness. Mm -hmm. uh, it used to say cope with your feelings without using food, and, and the, the, the point of the principle is still the same, that let's find a variety of coping mechanisms, but what's happened with diet culture, it shames people for coping with, with, with food, and there's, there's actually nothing wrong with that. Now, if you get to a point where you're not feeling good, that's that, and it's problematic, of course, we want to look at this and see what other ways can we look at self-soothing and, and coping. And, you know, some people, because the, the, the loss of control feels so profound in their mind, that the only thing that can explain it is something like what they would say is, is addiction. So the experience is real. I want to be really clear. I don't want to minimize what someone is feeling, but what we call it is really important. And with some people, if all they've ever learned how to do was to cope with food, they might need a more broader um, range of tools in which they can learn other types of coping mechanism. But the other thing that's also fascinating, we touched on this too, is that if you grow up with the history of food insecurity, food scarcity, meaning you don't know if you're going to have food on the table, there's actually research coming out showing how that actually increases the risk of, of binge eating. And it makes sense because it's a primal uh, adaptive response when the body doesn't think it's going to eat. And so what breaks my heart is when people then label it, there's something wrong with me. There's shame involved. When No, no, your body's actually working. And so when I work with adults who have it in their history, part of the process is reminding themselves and grounding themselves in the present moment that I'm an adult, I can take care of myself, I will take care of myself, I have access to food and, and so on. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's, a, it's a primal thing. And we, we saw this also with the, you know, the, the pandemic with all the empty shelves in the grocery stores, I had a lot of patients really triggered by that one to see the empty shelves of food and then to feel the fear in the people in the stores. And what, what I tell them is you're feeling your humanity, you're feeling your biology, you see how we're all wired together that we perceive we pick up these things. And for some people, it's a familiar fear, and it, it drives them into panic. And that's when we stop and say, wait a minute, I'm okay. I will take care of myself and, 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 and so on. So it's, it's fascinating, this whole relationship we have with food in our bodies, you know?
Yeah, it's interesting as you refer to the pandemic, seeing in my practice so much, such a diverse response to the stressors that we're under right now. So for, you know, so for one client, it may be actually, I can't, I don't have access to all of my safe foods, the foods that are um, sort of my control foods right now. So I've actually loosened the reins a little bit and realizing that I'm okay if I just eat what my, my mom makes. And, you know, like that, that it's going to be all right. And then on the other end of the spectrum, I find myself, people are saying I'm finding myself, you know, going to the cupboards more because I'm feeling so stressed. And then another end of the spectrum, I find myself controlling my food and my diet more because I feel so out of control. And it's, it's sort of how are we, how this all plays out in our relationship yeah. with food. I think what's really grounding about your work is that we can sort of do a U-turn and turn to the inside. Yeah. And in there, we have uh, an inner guide of, of how to navigate all this stuff. Oh, you're feeling bored. Oh, you're feeling sad. Oh, you're feeling mm-hmm. out of control. Oh, you're feeling hungry. Oh, you're feeling restricted. Oh, this is your learning history from your childhood. And if we, as we develop our awareness around that, it, it can be actually quite comforting. Yeah. And, that, and just even hearing the way that you said that with such compassion, and that's often what I find missing uh, in our, in the minds of my, of the patients I have is they don't have that compassion. And so looking at it through that lens, you know, what's a kind way that I can look at this? What would I say to my kids? What would I say to a friend? And so sometimes for some people, it's looking at basic issues. Like what am I feeling right now? What do I need right now? And even the question, what do I need right now for a lot of my patients is therapeutic because they haven't even acknowledged they have needs. And maybe for the first time they are, and then they're like, I have no idea. That's awesome. <laughs> and then they hit man, why is that awesome? Because at least you're recognizing this is something you haven't haven't looked at. And then part of the the way forward, part of the path out is starting to figure out what those what those needs are, you know? Yeah. So what would it look like if we were to walk through the day of someone that is practicing intuitive eating? What would it, what would what would I notice about that person? How would they be approaching? their day and their relationship with food and their bodies. One of the things I think you'll notice is it's feedback my patients get when they've really have shifted into this more than just the intellectual buy-in that they actually uh, have embodied it. And, and that is, there's like this, there's this peace and this freedom around eating. It's not a moral or ethical dilemma. And that's the one thing I like to really stress is that there should be no morality in eating. So it's about connecting within what sounds good, what feels good. And it's also recognizing, and this surprises some people, that sometimes during stress, for example, or trauma that gets re-triggered, our body shuts down in a survival response and we're not feeling hunger or fullness. And that's okay. We use our wise mind, our kind mind, and say, ah, how, what, what can I do for nourishment as self-care? What has been in my history in terms of either meals or snacks that sounds good and feels good in my body that also, and this is key, that also matches my energy level. Because I find that when people's bodies are shut down from stress or exhaustion, they're not in the mood to cook a five-course meal. You know, <laughs> Even the idea of pushing a microwave button is too much. And so we need to find these types of so kind solutions that match the energy level, not getting judgy about that. So there is a peace and an an ease that happens with an intuitive eater, not just with their eating, but how they relate to themselves, how they move their body, how they treat their bodies. And as a result, there tends to be more, um, I would say more contentment because you're allowed, you have more bandwidth to focus on the things that you value and that you find important in your life and not giving it up to um, diet culture. 
So there was a very sad, uh, to me, sad. I got I got tagged by a lot of people in an Instagram post by uh, the well-known author Glennon Doyle, uh, who wrote, you know, Untamed and many other types of books. And she was describing how fifty percent of her time, her brain waves, our brain space rather, is focused and worrying around eating and her body. And how how sad is that? You know, it's, it's an example of our culture that we have someone who is smart and successful and who has this level of suffering. And she was contemplating like, wow, imagine the more good I can be doing in the world. And she does an awful lot of good right now as it is. But imagine what I could unleash in this world if I was to be able to free up that space. So that's, that's the difference with that. And so when someone has a lot of anxiety, we pick up on that. We don't know what it is, but we pick up on that. And when that anxiety is gone from the worry around food and body, that peace that's there, it makes the person also just a little bit more uh, approachable and, and open. So I realize I'm giving you a very broad answer, but it looks different for different people. That's mm-hmm. right. And you're giving me sort of the, the outcome answer of, okay, I want that. If people are listening, they're like, yeah, yeah. I want that. That sounds good. Yeah. And what I actually find is, okay, I want that. But then when I'm faced with my meal and I have this critic, critic in my head and I have this confusion about what to eat and I have a, I don't know if I'm hungry or not because it's been so long since I even checked in or even know what that feels like. Yeah. There's some real concrete steps to get from, from that place to the feeling peace. The process and which steps and when look different for everybody. So, and, I, I, and it's no different than therapy. You know, you might use the ACT model, but how you use it with somebody is going to look a little different than with, with, with somebody else. But as I was saying earlier, my most common place to start is with this idea of satisfaction. And we get deeper in terms of well, what would you need to know in order to know? <laughs> I ask that question a lot. What would you need to know in order to know what, what is satisfying? Would you need to know um, hunger levels of your body, for example? Would you need to know um, fullness? Would you need, would having some more freedom around your eating contribute to the satisfaction aspect and all those types of things? So I would start with, with I call it sometimes the trifecta. Of, of aiming for satisfaction and what that might feel like. How do I want to feel? And actually just from the act of eating, what sounds good? What sounds good right now? You know, and it's okay if you don't even have the answer to that question. You know, well, what would feel good? And what would leave me feeling good after, after eating that? And sometimes people think that the satisfaction, you have to hit the 10 of Nirvana. You've got to have like an amazing meal, you know, Martha Stewart or somebody prepared. It's like, no, sometimes it's ordinary. Sometimes it's a boring peanut butter jelly sandwich, you know, and a glass of milk or something. And actually, I, I, I love peanut butter jelly sandwiches, but the, and that's okay. Sometimes it's just getting your basic needs met. It doesn't have to be this nirvana and it's giving yourself the space and time that you know what i'm going to start figuring out what this is what is it i have a patient right now who is realizing um she has no idea what she likes but she's delighting in 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 the discovery of what that is and when she hits it and also understanding that sometimes a meal is going to be like meh and that's okay that's okay so what is that like? Uh, so aiming for satisfaction, honoring your hunger. Well, what does that mean? Well, that means I need to start listening to my body and paying attention. And that sounds easy. Just like breathing sounds easy. Meditation sounds easy. And it, but all these things require a practice of, of awareness. You know, what do I need in order to check in with me? 
And I have some patients who are so disconnected, then I'll say, well, you know, we know that during the waking hours, we need to eat about every two to six hours uh, in order to keep our blood sugar stable and feeling good. We can start with that. What pattern would help you start feeling good? And maybe someone starts to check in on their hunger every four hours and looking at eating in that way. I had a patient I'll never forget. We started off with this trifecta, aiming for satisfaction, looking at hunger and looking at fullness. And what he realized is because he was so terrified of fullness is that he thought he was a compulsive eater. He thought he was compulsively worried about food. And what he recognized is he was compulsively hungry because as he was, he decided to journal his meals were actually more like snacks. And so he would get hungry two hours later. And that got frustrating. And because he was in a great place of readiness and had already done a lot of work, he's like, well, what would it be like if I added more food in my meals? <laughs> and then he discovered, oh, if I have a little bit more, now the meal holds me for another four hours instead of two hours. And so this is cultivating this, this trust and, and to realize, oh my God, there's nothing wrong with his body. He was just constantly hungry. So he was eating until the absence of hunger, until the hunger went away, but that's not the same thing as fullness. So there's all these these little, these nuances, and it's a delightful discovery on what that could be for you, you know? And that, that actually part of the tuning in is how does this food make me feel if I, if I'm not going to be able to eat again, because I, I've got back-to-back clients for the next few hours, is this going to sustain me? Am I going to yes. be, you know, am I going to be hungry before bed if I eat this dinner? You know, things, things that are um, tuning into just also in some ways the nutritional aspect of food, but in a di- it's a different way of like, how does it sit with me, a personal way with my body, exactly. uh, what yeah. foods work for me. And to kind of throw a wrench into things, I was so uh, sort of interested to hear that you have a son with celiac. Yes. And it's like, whoa, okay, how, how does... How do you how do you handle this? Like we add in an allergy or a medical condition that actually does restrict your food or dictate some ways in which you need to eat. How do you intuitively eat when that's the case? Yeah, and I got to tell you, I, I mean, it was a my my son was diagnosed with celiac disease when he was a toddler. Now he's an adult living on his own and doing brilliantly, and he's an intuitive eater. But in this case, there's a strict you know twenty parts per million will make you sick. So no, you can't eat gluten, but you can honor hunger, you can honor, honor fullness, you can figure out what feels satisfying for my body, and all those types of things. So we still use the foundational principles, and so the honor your health with gentle nutrition with somebody who has celiac disease includes. And without gluten, what is that like? And one of the biggest problems I've seen with patients that I've seen with celiac disease is if they go somewhere where they can't eat a meal because there's gluten in it, they go without and they get too hungry. And so it becomes more of the self-care. It's like, okay, if you're not going to bring food to that potluck, uh, what are you going to do to make sure your needs are being taken care of? Are you going to eat the meal ahead of time? Are you going to bring a snack? And so on and so on. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's all workable. Now, one of the things uh, I want to stress with this, because you mentioned a fear that's really common and the fear of, oh, if I eat whatever I want, because making peace means you can eat what you want for the most part. Um, it's really based in a lot of really solid research on habituation and, and restraint theory and habituation. I love it. it. It's, it's the research around novelty that when something's new, it's exciting. And so when someone's been chronically dieting and they think they can't have candy or cookies or whatever it is, that food stays exciting. And then when they go off their diet or their food plan, they go, they tend to gravitate those very foods and they, they, 
they see to themselves that they they don't want to stop eating them. And so they say, oh, see, I need rules. I got to get back on some meal plan. They never habituate. And one of the best descriptions I ever heard of habituation came from a scientist. He says, you know, it's like falling in love with somebody for the first time. You're madly in love with this person. You haven't said anything. And now this person says to you, I love you. And it's magical. It's amazing. You're floating on air. But then five years later, you're in a committed relationship and they say, I love you. And it's like, yeah, I know. <laughs> it's nice to hear, but it doesn't have that same magic. And so when someone says to me, oh my God, if I ate whatever I wanted, I'd never stop eating cookies. And I'll say that is usually a reflection of your own deprivation. Because the truth is, uh, if you knew you could eat cookies every day, would you really want to? Would you really want to eat cookies every single day, every single meal? And what ends up happening is you get to ask, well, do I really want it? Do I really, if I eat it now, will I enjoy it right now? And do I like how I feel? And I'll tell you, I, I love watching it as, as, as this plays out in the lives of people. I try not to get in the way. I let them have their own process. I've had patients say, aren't you going to stop me? I'm eating all these donuts. And I'll say, you know, you need to have the experience, but I'm really curious how connected you are with the process. Are you eating them and connecting with how they taste and how you feel afterwards? Or is it more just uh, uh, something you're, you're, you're just acting through? And what tends to happen is after a while, it's like, you know, I like donuts, but I don't like how I feel if I eat them for a meal. So they come to those own realizations and that becomes really powerful, but this only happens with permission, you know, and this is also a component of, of exposure therapy, that the more we expose ourselves to something, the less of a big deal it is. So it's about the excitement factor, you know? Mm -hmm. So there's self stories that we tell ourselves about food. And then there's also self stories we tell ourselves about movement. Oh, and, God. you know, I think, I think our movement gets hijacked as well by our external environment. When we're little, we just want to go out and move and hang from trees and cross the bars and play with our friends and then sit on the sidelines and do, do all of that. But in the same way that our relationship with food got hijacked, so did our, our relationship with just wanting to move and the joy of movement yeah. uh, as well. It's interesting that you're using the word movement because that was another change we, we made. Instead of saying exercise, we talk about uh, movement, feeling the difference. And I have no problem actually with the word exercise. The problem, however, it's been like used in a very materialistic, like a, like a military kind of way. So we like to use the word movement instead. So there's no agenda. And there's actually a, an area of research that's fascinating right now, looking at movement based on for the, uh, for the outcome of pleasure that that actually has more of an impact to people continuing to engage in that. And you're right. There's uh, actually a, um, a, a personal trainer out of uh, London. Her name is Tally Rye. And she just wrote a book describing this calling it's called train happy or intuitive eating. She used the principles of intuitive eating to apply it to training and moving your body in that way. Yeah. She used to be in diet culture. She acknowledges that. And now she's seen, there's a whole different way to relate to the body and, and to movement and something that you do that's for fun. You're going to continue doing that, but something that's done as a chore done because you think you're going to shrink your body. That's not motivating over time. You know? Yeah. I was thinking about that a lot when I was reading through your book of how much even savoring movement, enjoying the process of movement, how it transforms your relationship with asking yourself, what is the movement that I want to do? It feels good to me. And yeah. it's, it, it really does map on it, as you described at the very beginning, to interoceptive awareness right. <laughs> and checking in because one movement one day may feel good, another day it may not. And same thing with amount of food today or maybe different than the amount of food that I need tomorrow or at the next meal. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it can be simple of asking questions. Do I want to feel energized with movement or do I want to feel peaceful and kind of at ease? And sometimes the question to ask is, do I need to take the day off today? You know, I've had people afraid of doing that. And what that does, it keeps movement fresh. It makes you look forward to it, prevents injury and, and burnout. So yeah, this is about changing the whole relationship, you know? And you have a long history with movement as a runner, and I'm so, yeah, I'm so curious how that influenced your work being a runner. You know what? It influenced it a lot. I look back. It's funny. I look back now and see how it's influenced my work even more so. You know, back in the day uh, when I was running in high school, they didn't have girls track teams. Not for them. Our, our team, our school didn't. So I ran on the boys team. And I would love to beat the boys. That's how I got interested in nutrition. What can I eat to make me run faster? But what I ran up against for the very first time was a system of oppression in terms of patriarchy. So I met all the qualifications to letter in a boys sport and the coach did not want to give it to me. And I thought that was wrong. So I, with my, with the support of my parents, I fought them and I went to the principal and it's the first time I fought the patriarchy and, and won. <laughs> so that had an impact. Um, but but I'll tell you what, what makes my story a little bit unusual is because those in my formative years in high school, running on the boys team, I viewed my body as, as, uh, as an instrument, not an ornament. And this comes from the words from the co-founders of Beauty Redefined, you know, that we need to be changing our, our relationship to our bodies, not in an objectification kind of way. So at the end of the week, we'd be in a circle and we'd, we'd be looking at each other's legs for anastomosis to see whose veins were popping the best, whose veins were showing more vascularization because we're getting in shape. So I was looking at function. So that, that was protective for me, you know, so that mm-hmm. helped a lot. The other thing that helped, and this is, I, I look back and I was just strangely lucky that when I was in college competing against women, at that time, our uniforms looked like underwear, <laughs> like French underwear. There was nothing to be left to the imagination. And that's when I would see cellulite on women's bodies of these trained endurance athletes. And I was thinking, oh, I guess that's normal. <laughs> now, today with diet culture, that, that, that thinking wouldn't have been there. So I was just lucky that I was exposed to that and internalized it in in that way, but I grew up with a dieting mom. So, you know, I, I have felt the impact. And one of my saddest days ever, her saddest day, one of them, was when she was diagnosed with ovarian cancer, you know, at the age of 64, and then was just kind of reflecting on her life. It was just us two. She stands up, takes a little, little turn and says, all these years dieting, what a waste. I will never forget that. And I think that's what really just emboldened my passion for this work, you know, to see all the suffering and how it takes it out of your life. It takes you away from your life when you're focused on trying to change the genetic disposition of your body and where it was supposed to be, you know? Yeah. There's two, I think, really important things that, that you share in that. And one is just, it's also human nature to compare. Yeah. And even, you know, even then, like it's, it's, if you've been comparing yourself to other people's bodies, it's because that's part of human nature and it's not our fault. And the question is, is where do I want to place my attention? You know, and I think in, in the world that we're in, it's, it's a lot harder because of the images that we're, we're just, they're coming fast and there's a lot of them and people are, uh, they're not real. And so there's that component. And then the other part of it is if I'm not spending my time comparing, then how do I want to spend my time? If I'm not spending my time dieting, how do I want to spend my time? And it's not something that we necessarily age out of. That Well, 
It's so interesting because it ends up being an unintended consequence that as people heal the relationship, what ends up happening is they find themselves with a lot more time on their hands and they can't get over it, you know, and, and then to have the privilege of asking, how do I want to spend this time? Depending on what stage or season you are in your, in your life, it might mean more time than others. I mean, if you're raising a young family, even with that extra time, you still find yourself quite busy, as you know. But it's it's kind of a, a beautiful question. And sometimes a person doesn't recognize, because this is this background anxiety, this, this um, worrying about the body and what you're eating has been so constant that it's not until it's completely absent do you realize, oh my gosh, not only what a relief, but I've got more time in my day. I'm not running around buying ingredients to follow some diet or I've had patients postpone vacations, major events, turn down social settings because they were on some type of, of diet. You know, it's really sad. For those that want to learn more about you and, you know, join some of your groups, what kind of things do you have to offer people right now? So, you know, our website, the intuitiveeating.org is a great way to go. We have all the principles listed there. We've got uh, tons of research there and links to the research if you're interested in that. We also have the intuitive eating online community.org, intuitive eating online.org, which is a free peer to peer support group. We have about 20,000 people there. So that's a great place to bond with others. Uh, and it's and it's awesome. We have some great volunteers running that. And then for those uh, health professionals that are out there that are interested in learning more, we actually train and certify people in this model. We have over a thousand health professionals now in 23 countries. So if you want to be part of this movement, um, I, I welcome you. <laughs> so we have trainings. You can look at you can find those on the website also in terms of what the process is on that. And then of course our our fourth edition of Intuitive Eating. And I'd say lastly, this is free. Uh, is, is to follow me on Instagram at Evelyn Tribley, uh, at, at Evelyn Tribley. I predominantly post on all things intuitive eating. So that's about 99%. Every once in a while, I'll, I'll post on something with a cute rock I found, but other than that, <laughs> you know. And yeah. also want to just give, give a shout out to the workbook as well, oh, because yes. I think that that it's such a personalized approach you can do with yourself, especially if maybe you don't want to work with a healthcare provider or don't have the finances or means to do so. Thank you for mentioning that. And something else about the workbook, uh, it just, fin- there was a, a research study just done on the workbook, using it on university women, both on an individual level or in a group level. And across the board, they had improvement. It was so exciting to see this. So hopefully we'll see that study published in the very near future. So there seems to be also some validity on, on this, but it's the way that Elise and I work with our patients. So it, that's a great step to take as well. Thank you. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Thank it's you. wonderful to see you and we'll continue to follow you in all those different avenues. Take care. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Psychologist Off the Clock. If you enjoy our podcast, you can help us out by leaving a review or contributing on Patreon. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and you can connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We'd like to thank our interns, Dr. Catherine Foley-Saldania and Dr. Katie Lear. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you're having a mental health emergency, dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources of our webpage, offtheclockpsych.com.